This episode is sponsored by the Principal Center. The Principal Center is a provider of professional development for high-performance instructional leadership. Go to the website principalcenter.com. On this website, you can find a lot of resources and services on leadership. And now, let's go to today's podcast. Welcome to the podcast Research in Leadership in Schools, Early Childhood Settings and Social Care Settings. I work at the University of the Faroe Islands. I work in the area of uh, pedagogical leadership and my name is Johannes Miesgaard. Today we are going to listen to an interview that I have made with Peter Early. So I'm sitting here at the University of London at the Institute of Education and I'm sitting here with Professor Peter Early. And and maybe first, Peter, can you tell us about your professional background? Sure, yeah. Um, I actually uh, trained uh, as a teacher and spent the first part of my career uh, as a high school teacher. Um, but because my um, my university discipline was social science and sociology, and at that time there wasn't much school teaching in that field, um, I actually went into further education and taught sociology in a college of further education in South London for about three years. And I put in... Um, a job application, a rather speculative application, I thought at the time, for a job in Australia, mm. um, which I surprisingly got, and I ended up spending five years working in Australia. In a school, or no, in a university, university, uh, okay. in a in a polytechnic, or what, what in Australia at the time was called a college of advanced education, yeah. they're now called universities, um, and I was also doing some work in a university, the University of Newcastle, which was on um, the adjacent campus to the Polytechnic that I was working in. Mm. And they were just setting up a new department of sociology. And being a sociologist, um, I um, found some work there initially part-time, and then they offered me um, a temporary lectureship, and I ended up staying there for three years, or five years in total. <laughs> mm. And when I came back to UK, because that was always the intention, I would come back to UK. When I came back, it wasn't a very good time to get a job. In fact, I was unemployed for six months mm. before I was able to get a job. And the job that I got was at the um, National Foundation for Educational Research. And I was employed as a full-time research officer. Um, and the first project that I worked on at the NFER um, was a study of newly appointed head teachers. Mm. So I hadn't any experience of headship myself or school leadership. Uh, I had held various leadership roles, but not senior leadership roles. Uh, and I found myself uh, working with a colleague, um, senior researcher called Dick Windling, 
and um, I found that I was working at NFER for the next 10 years before I came here, mm. University of London or Institute of Education, and I was working on a variety of research projects, but they were all around leadership, school leadership, mm. and professional development. Okay. And my main research interest has remained those same those very same areas of school leadership and uh, professional development um, and uh, professional learning. Mm. And the first project that I did was a study of newly appointed secondary heads. Mm. And we published a book in 1987, so you can see it's quite a long time ago now, over 25 years. <laughs> uh, we published a book called Secondary Headship the First Years, and it was a kind of pioneering study, uh, some people refer to it as a seminal study, looking at the experiences of newly appointed principals or head teachers. Mm. And since that time I've always had a very strong research interest, not only in leadership but specifically senior leadership and principals and head teachers. Okay. So for example, um, my most recent project, um, we've been commissioned to do a small piece of work for the um, independent sector looking at the leadership development needs, the professional development needs of independent school heads. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, Johannes, but in England here we have, or in UK, we have about 7% of the population that go to private schools, yeah. but the influence those private schools have is way over and above the numbers that go there. You know, you're familiar with Eton and Harrow and Oh, yeah. How many prime ministers come out from Harrow? Our current prime minister, um, David Cameron, is from Eton and so on. So we're doing a study which is looking at the heads of Eton and Harrow and, and other perhaps less prestigious independent schools to try and find out what their leadership development needs are. Mm. Um, and that's the project that I'm doing at the moment with a couple of colleagues and we'll be reporting to HMC, who are the sponsoring body, we'll be reporting to them um, in, in the spring, or the late spring. And again, that our whole area of leadership development uh, is something that stayed with me throughout my research career. I mean, I was a full-time researcher at NFER, and increasingly working on you know several projects at the same time. I moved to the university in the late 90s and since that time my role as an academic has included uh, obviously teaching and consultancy as well as research but the research that I do is very much around uh, school leadership and leadership development okay. whether we're talking about preparation and training for headship yeah. or perhaps where there's much less of a research base is the whole area about mid-career or even late career heads Ooh. and what we do for them okay. in terms of professional development and training. Because it, it seems to me that one of the big challenges that all education systems have is how do you keep head teachers fresh hmm. and rejuvenated and lively because it is such a demanding role. Mm. You know, some people say that it's a young person's job. And so what do you do with those heads who are, you know, 45, 55, approaching 60? How do you keep them fresh? Yeah. And at the moment, I don't think our system provides very much for them oh. in terms of professional development opportunities. Yeah. Um, so that's one area that I'm very interested in is what can we do 
to try and maintain that early enthusiasm that you see in head teachers and other senior leaders when at the same time they have such a difficult and demanding you know full-on draining job yeah, um, yeah. but my research interests um, largely center around leadership and professional development um, my most recent book was uh, called Exploring the School Leadership Landscape, where we were trying to get a sense of how school leaders in England uh, were facing up to the many challenges that they um, were having to face. Mm. Um, and what I tried to do in that book was to draw upon some research into headship that I've been involved in for the last um, 10 years or so. do in that most recent book um, is compare and contrast the situation, how it's changed over the last decade or so. Mm. Because I was involved in the early 20s. Um, we published a, uh, a research report in 2002 called Establishing the State of Leadership in England. It was a, it was a piece of research that was commissioned by uh, what at the time was the newly established National College for School Leadership. And they wanted to know, as the title of the report suggests, they wanted to know what was happening uh, in relation to leadership generally and headship in particular. Mm -hmm. And in that book, um, Exploring the School Leadership Landscape, I tried to look at how the position had changed because we were commissioned again by the National College in 2012 to do a, another study looking at how schools and head teachers were responding to this very rapidly changing policy landscape. Mm -hmm. So we wrote a report about that project for the National College and it seemed to me a, a really good opportunity to sort of bring together that earlier report that I led, project team that I led in 2002, and again to look to compare it with the project that I led in 2012, about a 10-year difference. Yeah. And I think that although a lot of the same things were coming up, which was perhaps you know, a little bit surprising, things like um, the degree to which head teachers still felt that it was a very challenging, demanding, relentless job, uh, where they very often felt isolated professionally. Um, all of those things hadn't changed over that time. In fact, in many ways, they got slightly worse. But it was also a question of how they were responding to what was the changing policy context, because yeah. we've seen so many changes in the last five years or so. Mm. Um, the other thing which surprisingly came across as being consistent uh, with both of these research studies, and indeed goes back to the very first study of headship that I did um, in the uh, in the mid 80s when I um, was working at the National Foundation for Educational Research was the degree to which head teachers were still telling us that it was the best job in education. Hmm. Um, now, okay, you might say we only got to talk to those who were still around and there had been a lot of attrition and people had resigned or retired through ill health and so on. But whenever we spoke to heads, they were saying that it's a challenging, a demanding, a relentless job, the workload is enormous, but really 
I wouldn't have anything different because yeah. as far as working in schools go, working in education, it really is the best job that there is. They use phrases like, you know, no two days are the same and uh, it's very exciting because not only are we involved in developing children and seeing them develop and blossom, but we also uh, can see that in relation to our staff, you know, the, in a way Head teachers and teachers are not too different. It's a matter of scale. Mm. So that whereas teachers are very keen to see their children blossom and grow, yeah. uh, head teachers too think of, it, of their whole staff in that way as their as their class, if you like. Mm. And I think that's very helpful because one definition of leadership um, that I quite like, and it's not one that applies specifically to education. But a definition of leadership that I quite like is one that talks about growth and development and that what leaders do is that they help people grow and develop. And I heard someone speak recently about parallels with a gardener, and I, mm -hmm. I'm quite a keen gardener, actually, I hope. Yeah. But, you know, the way, in fact, the, the way that you see things grow and develop, you say, oh, that's all my work. You mm. know? From a little seed, these great big trees grow and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And essentially, I think that's what leaders do, whether we're talking about education, whether we're talking about social work or, or early years. You know, there are some generic features that one can say about what, what good leadership is about. Yeah. And uh, I certainly think uh, good leaders inspire, they motivate, but most, of, most importantly, I think they're there to help grow and develop people, to mm. try and help them to realise their potential. Yeah. Um, and as you know, um, we all know what it's like to work for good leaders, and just comparing that with what it's like to work for people that aren't so good in terms of you know the commitment that we give to the organization we work over and above call of duty yeah. we're motivated we're really excited about things and working in an organization um, where it's well led and managed and there are all those exciting things going on hmm. you know, a, a healthy organization if you like a learning organization yeah. Yeah. Um, in one of the courses that I teach I, I use the term learning enriched organizations mm. or learning enriched schools oh, okay. it's not my notion it comes from uh, a seminal work by the American sociologist Susan Rosenthal in the in the late 80s but then I do go back and use some of the old material because mm because, you know, these are seminal studies. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, working in an organization that is healthy as opposed to a toxic organization mm. or a toxic culture. Yeah. In fact, in, the, in a book that we've got coming out in the autumn, uh, an edited collection that um, my colleague Toby Greeny and I have edited, um, one of the chapters in there written by a colleague is called Toxic Leadership. Mm. Uh, and I think it's, and another chapter in there is called Leading for Well-Being. Okay. And I think that's a nice sort of contrast between a healthy organization and a toxic one. Mm. And leaders are so important in setting the tone, in terms of modeling, in terms of leading the learning. Um, we're using the term very much now in education of learning-centered leadership. Um, which is a little bit more than what the Americans would call instructional leadership or pedagogic leadership. Yeah. We talk about learning-centered leadership or leadership for learning, mm. and that's very much the kind of dominant model of leadership that is being sort of used now in the school context. Yeah. Um, in fact, if you look at 
if you look at a combination of instructional leadership and transformational leadership, that might you might oh. call that leadership for learning. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think the other dominant model in our schools at the moment is distributed leadership. But I think there's a lot of rhetoric about that uh, as opposed to the reality of what's sort of going mm. down. But I think if you look at the really good schools, the schools that are uh, offering an all-round education to school, to children, rather than simply um, what we might call examination factories where teachers teach to the test and the kids get good results, but the education that they're getting leaves a lot to be desired. And I think good leaders are very aware of what they're trying to achieve in terms of offering, if you like, that more rounded education, what you and I would both agree, mm. goes to make up good schooling yeah, rather yeah. than good testing. Yeah. And that's one of the issues that we picked up in the research. Uh, unsurprisingly, I think you'll agree, but one of the issues that we picked up was working as a head particularly as a head rather than a senior leader, but working as a head in an environment which is what's sometimes referred to as a high-stakes accountability culture. Mm. Because England, probably more so than other parts of the United Kingdom, but I think England, perhaps with Netherlands, perhaps with the, some states in the USA, and perhaps with New Zealand, I think these systems, more so than others, are very much underpinned by high-stakes accountability. You know, we speak here of head teachers only being as good as your last set of inspection results. Mm. We talk here about head teachers being a little bit like football managers. You know, if you don't if you don't get the results, then you're on your bike and you get fired. Mm. And we'd sometimes wonder why is it that we can't get uh, a whole load of people who are interested in applying for headships and we have a real difficulty at the moment as do many education systems globally not all I hasten to add but many we have a real difficulty in actually appointing people to that top job mm. um, people are reluctant to say yeah I'm gonna go for that you know even though once there, people come back and say it's the best job in education, but to get people to take that on is quite a challenge. Why should I, people say, why should I move from my present position of deputy headship or assistant headship or vice principal to the, to the more senior post? Uh, the salary increase might only be, you know, 5%, 10% at the most, but actually, because the buck stops here with mm. me at the top of the organizational apex, yeah. that is very demanding. It's a professionally isolating position. The buck stops here in the sense that the results, when they come out, uh, essentially they come back to you, you know, you're responsible for the good, the highs and the lows, and so on. Mm. And I think Given that and the the incredible workload, you know, we, we have studies here in England which show year after year the head teachers do a sixty to sixty five hour week. And you might say, Well, okay, you know, they're in senior posts, so that that's what we can expect from them. And what's more, of course, you know, um, one of the attractions of working in education is that you do get the long summer holidays and more vacations than, say, university academics to get, for example. So there are, there are um, pros and cons. But looking at, you know, do I really want to become a head um, is a key question.
Mm. Here at the Institute, we actually run um, what's called the Leadership Curriculum, where we offer a number of programs for people in leadership positions in schools and also people who want to become head teachers. So we have something called the National Professional Qualification for Heads, mm. NPQH, okay. and we have also National Professional Qualifications for Senior Leaders and Middle Leaders. Yeah. None of those are compulsory. It used to be the case that to become a principal you had to have this NPQH qualification, but the government two or three years ago uh, changed that rule. Mm. Uh, but nevertheless, we still have lots of people wanting to do that qualification. Mm. Uh, in fact, we've got something like um, two and a half thousand people on those programs. Mm. Okay. We have about 400 people on our master's programs here at the UCL and the Institute. But we also, in addition to that, we have um, two and a half to three thousand people doing these national qualifications. Yeah. So, yeah. whether that whether they convert into actual actual applications for headship um, is a, is a moot uh, point. And here in London, we're just about to set up um, an organisation that is going to attempt to talent spot and identify school leaders of the future. Mm. And in fact, our chief inspector, uh, Sir Michael Wilshaw, who is the chief inspector of our inspection agency called Ofsted, he was giving evidence to the Education Committee and Parliament uh, just yesterday, actually, because mm. uh, it made the news today. And he was saying that in education, we need to get much, much better at spotting future leaders and identifying talent at a, at a much earlier stage huh. Huh. and giving them the opportunities to develop and even to fast track yeah. into headship. Yeah. At the moment, we have a couple of schemes of what are called accelerated leadership development. Uh, in fact, I was involved in evaluating one of them about... Um, Ten years ago, it's called Future Leaders, okay. um, but it's a, it's it, it only involves a, a fairly small number well, of, of heads. Yeah. We have something like twenty two thousand schools in England. We have something like a ten percent turnover of head teachers each year uh, through moving on to second headships or retiring or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, deciding to take on another career. So that means we need about two thousand heads. We have to appoint about two thousand heads a year. So that's yeah. quite a quite a large number to find mm. those for. Do you think it's impossible, is, is it possible to identify kind of the common leaders and, and what are the characteristics or skills that you would kind of look yeah. for? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, they do suggest that it is possible and there are a number of features that one can look out for. It's interesting, when you talk to head teachers and you ask them about the appointment process, very often they say things like, when appointing a new teacher to the staff, mm. I always try and identify whether they're going to be a leader in the future. And I say, well, what, you know, what kind of things would you point to? Yeah. Uh, and invariably, it's things like uh, attitude and approach, being open-minded, being flexible, um, someone who can develop relationships. Um, the research shows there are a number of features associated with effective leadership, and I think this is generic rather than just being about educational leaders. Mm. 
but you know things like being optimistic and positive seeing things seeing the glass half full rather than half empty mm. I don't know if that means anything yeah, yeah, to you yeah, but that's yeah, a yeah. common phrase here um, it's about wanting to be um, aware of what's going on around you you know we talk about a number of intelligences we talk about emotional intelligence we talk about strategic intelligence we talk about contextual intelligence but also we shouldn't forget the you know the bog standard cognitive intelligence because I think leaders do need to be quite mm. brainy people really yeah. they need you know a good leader is able to make the right decision and yeah. the right decision is going to depend on a whole host of factors at that time mm. about the people you're working with about the situation you're in the context and so on yeah. and in some ways to be able to make good decisions as a leader you need to draw on a stock of experience mm. and one of the things about fast-tracking people to leadership is can you fast-track experience can you can you multiply that experience for them rapidly so mm. they've got that body of knowledge expertise and experience that they can draw upon yeah. to make good decisions and we did a review about five years ago looking at some of the some of the talent identification and fast tracking programs um, that are found not only in education but outside of education and we came across the phrase um, mile wide inch deep mm. which essentially if you excuse the imperial measures that's <laughs> 50 centimeters wide uh, uh, no, sorry I, I won't go there um, but essentially you know these people were given lots of opportunities to do things but they didn't actually get much depth of experience ah. in whatever they did um, so that I think is one of the limitations there there is a limit I think to to the extent to which you can fast-track experience but having said that you know there are teachers who say you know I've had 20 years experience and, and you know therefore um, I should be in a position to be promoted or whatever but sometimes when you look at those experience that those teachers have had they had one year's experience repeated 20 times oh, you know okay, rather yeah. than having all of this so yeah. I think there are some qualities that one can look for in trying to look at future leaders mm. and then to give them the opportunities to grow and okay. develop yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think that's what leadership is all about are we I mean I mentioned a moment ago that the definition is about growth and development yeah. and I think that's what leaders key role is is to develop their people mm. so what they're trying to do is to ensure that are we providing people with the opportunities that they can grow and develop to prepare them to plan you know we use the phrase succession planning leadership preparation leadership development so I think I think senior leaders are in a very good position to see their people at work and to get some insights and understandings as to which who are our future leaders as it were yeah. and then to perhaps give those people opportunities to demonstrate that leadership I mean a lot of leadership development is about what you're doing in the workplace rather than going off-site and going on courses mm. and so mm. on are we doing enough to ensure that the workplace is you know a place where people are learning because that on the job training and development is crucial um, I think we're getting there but I still think there are some of our leaders of schools who are not sufficiently 
thinking that their main job is actually to develop their people. That's what they're there, they're yeah. for. Um, yeah. You know, ten, fifteen years ago, uh, Jim Collins, the well-known American business professor, oh, yeah. used the term level five leaders, and that's what we've got to do. We've got to ensure that all of our leaders are level five. That they're more concerned in developing and bringing forward their people than they are about self-aggrandizement mm. or about you know they're self-effacing, they're modest. Yeah. Um, and of course, if they were uh, fortunate enough to get run over uh, by a bus on the way to work, it wouldn't be the end of the world in the sense that there would be other people there that could yeah. take on that role of leadership. Yeah. And that's what leaders do. They develop mm. others. Yeah. Previously, you talked about um, uh, kind of the newly appointed head teachers and then those who have been in the business for a long time. And maybe the needs of these two groups or the three groups of head teachers, they are different. But could there be a danger in kind of constructing programs only for those who are senior? Yeah. Could, could we kind of maybe segment it's too much? Mm. And, and how can we kind of prevent that? Mm. No, it's a good point. I mean, in, in some ways there are, there are many issues and challenges that are there, whether you're new, mid-career, or perhaps mm. coming towards the end of your career. Um, I think there are some challenges which don't go away, but it's a matter of how can we best meet those? How can we try and ameliorate professional isolation, for instance? Mm. Um, so um, one of the things we found in our study of newly appointed heads, um, which we did for the National College three or four years ago, um, is we found that heads were saying that they used a variety of people to act as mentors to them, or guides, or counsellors, or whatever, advisors, and, and having those networks, having those people, and going to different people for different things was really interesting. Mm. What was a really interesting part of that project, which if you, uh, I just mentioned if you don't mind, yeah. is part of the research method was to observe them for a day. We had six head teachers that we studied in detail, okay. and we observed them at work for a day. So one of us would, one of the research team would meet them when they arrived at school, and then stay with them for the whole day uh, until they left the premises, and uh -huh. to take a record of what they actually uh, did. Okay. Um, so. We did that because we wanted to get some insights into how they were using their time, and we used it as part of the research study of newly appointed heads. But interestingly, when we gave feedback to the heads of how they spent that day, and okay, no day is typical, but you know, it's always interesting to know how they're spending their time. A lot of them wanted to, um, what we've referred to as learning-centered leadership. A lot of them wanted to be learning-centered leaders. Okay. But when you looked at how they spent their day, when you broke it down into those different things of management, administration, and so on, they found that the amount of time they were spending on what they wanted to do was quite limited. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so as a result of that, and those discussions that we had with the heads, it gave them an, an opportunity to reflect on their daily practice, and that's something that we that heads very rarely have the time to do. Yeah. And we actually wrote a paper about it in one of the uh, British uh, leadership management journals, saying using observation not only as a research tool for gathering data about how heads use their time, hmm. 
but also using observation as a leadership development strategy. So, for example, offering a service whereby head teachers could um, have someone like me come in and observe them for the day, write a report about that day, and then have a follow-up interview with them and talk about ways in which they could move towards operating in the way that they wanted to, Mm. becoming more learning-centred. Yeah. Interestingly, lots of the new heads wanted to be distributed leaders. They wanted to share leadership. They wanted a a collegial, collaborative environment, but found that they very often had to operate in a style that they didn't feel very comfortable with, in the sense that it was more directive or authoritarian. And when we explored that with the heads, they said, well, there were two reasons. One is they were still trying to find out which of their colleagues they could trust to do a good job. You know, they knew they didn't know Mm. enough about their colleagues to be able to share and distribute leadership. And secondly, quite often the schools that they were taking over were schools that were in uh, an inspection category. Uh, By that I mean they were failing schools, they were underperforming, and there was a lot of pressure on those heads to try and turn those schools round Mm. quickly so that they they became classified as a good school rather than a poor school. Mm. So very often heads don't, there's a difference between how they'd like to operate and how they actually operate. Um, And that's, I think that's an interesting finding. Um, Not a new finding, obviously, but I think what was new was giving them feedback on that observation day Mm. and using it for leadership development purposes rather than simply for research. Yeah, yeah. So to summarise, um, Johannes, I mean, I, I, I've been doing research in school leadership for um, since the mid-80s, so quite a, a long time. Um, but I, it's interesting that I think a lot, of the, a lot of the things that we were discussing at that time are still mm. around today. Mm. You know, professional isolation, we still haven't cracked that one. No. You know, it, some people say structurally it's very difficult to think of ways in which you can share that leadership because when people come to a school, when parents come to a school, they want to see the head teacher. They don't mm. want to see the second or the third in command or whatever. Um, people you know, direct their inquiries towards the head. But we need to look at ways which we can break that down. Uh, increasingly, we're seeing more and more co-headships, for example, as ways of sharing that burden mm. and so on. But I think the key issue, and one that um, perhaps we'll end with, because I don't think we've solved this, it, the key issue to me is to try and ensure that school leaders are able to continue functioning well over the years. And I wrote a paper with a colleague, Dick Weindling, um, about 10 years ago, I think it is now, where we were looking at how heads reach a certain peak after five, six, maybe seven years, and then plateau out. And they have a choice then of either going up Mm. the curve or going down. And to my mind, too many of them go down rather than up. Mm. And I think we need something in the system which ensures that they go up rather than down on Mm. that graph. And I think what we need, and some educational systems around the world do have this, but we don't have it currently in Britain. Um, And that that is things like sabbatical or study leave. Mm. To give head teachers, and teachers for that matter, an opportunity after a certain period of service, say five, six, seven years, 
uh, the opportunity to have some time out, maybe a term, ideally a year, but you know, a term where they can actually refresh and rejuvenate and resuscitate mm. some of those things that uh, uh, regalvanize, go back to those schools, and so on. And what's more, them being out for a term, say on study leave or a sabbatical, would also give those back at the school an opportunity to develop their leadership. Mm, mm. Because one of the things that we found both in our most recent research into headship and the early research in the mid-80s, that when we asked what's the single most important preparation they've had, people invariably say a spell as the acting head. Mm. Now, okay, acting headship isn't the same as being a head, because no, you no. know that you're only there temporarily, yeah, but yeah. they consistently say that that is the best preparation. Oh. Oh. And if we've got a lot of our six- and seven-year heads going off to do some study leave or a sabbatical, yeah. um, it does, you know, the, the, the unintended or consequence of that is that it would enable more and more people to temporarily feel, fill that role of oh. assistant head or acting head yeah, uh, yeah. which is which is ideal preparation oh. at, at, at the end um, which which area in, in leadership in schools do you think there is a need for more research in well I think um, what we're seeing at the moment in England is some rather significant policy changes we're moving towards what's called a self-improving school system where schools are working collaboratively with each other mm -hmm. in order to raise standards and to uh, improve and support each other so that is an area that we are looking at and we'll need to look at further mm. because there is a real concern that many people have uh, as far as the English system is uh, concerned and it's flagged up in the school leadership landscape book mm. is that there's a very real danger that we are uh, going to polarize the system where you have some schools that are working closely in acad multi-academy trusts in teaching alliances in federations and chains and they are going from strength to strength and yet there are others that aren't working in collaborative uh, allegiances and in alliances and so on um, and with the demise that we've seen of the middle tier the local authority where whereas when I first started doing research local authorities were extremely powerful they were in control of schools now um, that is not the case. Mm. Uh, in, in, some people say that in England we don't have a middle tier anymore. We still have state-controlled schools. Mm. Uh, an increasing number are academies, mm. Mm. and the non-academies are controlled by the local authority. Yeah. But because their resources have been drained and taken away from them over the last five years, really they are not able to do the role that they did in the past. So I think that's one of the issues that oh. we want to look at. Okay. Um, and the leadership implications of that as well. Yeah. yeah. If, if people want to find more information about your research, where can they go to on the internet? Yeah, I think if you, the easy way is to Google me, um, you'll come across uh, lists of publications, there's a couple of YouTubes of lectures I've given and so on, but also of course if you go to the UCL website mm. and locate either put my name in the search engine or the London Centre for Leadership in Learning, um, you'll get a sense of what we're doing as a, as a centre here. Mm. We, you know, my colleagues and I, I think we're doing some quite exciting research at the moment. Mm. Thank you very much, Peter. You're welcome.
thank you for listening to the podcast Research in Leadership in Schools, Early Childhood Settings and Social Care Settings. I hope you have enjoyed the interview and that you have gained some new insights into leadership. I hope that you will listen to the other podcasts in this series. A new podcast is being published on the first of every month. You're also welcome to join us on Facebook. There's a group called Research in Leadership in Schools, Early Childhood Settings and Social Care Settings. If you just type in the name of the podcast in the search field in Facebook, you will find the group. Once again, thanks for listening and bye bye.